Thanks for listening to the Best of Coast to Coast podcast and become a Coast Insider to hear the rest of this fascinating conversation and check out recent shows featuring guests sharing stories about growing up in a haunted house that was possessed by an evil presence, a nightmarish encounter with a UFO in the dead of night, and the financial horror stories from those who won the lottery and lived to regret it. Head on over to coasttocoastam.com and sign up for Coast Insider to hear these programs and many more truly thought-provoking shows from coast to coast. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back. Rupert Sheldrake with us, and we are going to take your calls next hour with Rupert. Rupert, I just came back from a conference near uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, that had to do with uh, afterlife uh, discussions. And, of course, you have looked at near-death experiences. How does this tie in with the work science and spiritual practices? Well, I think that um, near-death experiences um, are clearly, for many people who have them, spiritual experiences. They feel they've died. They feel they've gone um, through a kind of tunnel into a realm of peace and joy. And then, of course, they have to come back again. For many people who've had these, it seems as if they lose the fear of death, and many of them feel they've become better people. Uh, well, what's interesting about this is several things. First, um, there are now more near-death experiences than ever before. Um, this is a kind of golden age for near-death experiences because uh, of medicine itself. Uh, there are many more people alive today who would have died in the past, thanks to coronary resuscitation and modern medicine. So near-death experiences are commoner than ever before, and they've now been investigated scientifically in a variety of ways. One of the uh, objections of skeptics and atheists is that um, these near-death experiences are just kind of hallucinations produced by dying brains. But in um, studies carried out during the course of operations where people's hearts are deliberately stopped and their brains are monitored, uh, some of them have near-death experiences which uh, happen when the brain is flatlined. There's no measurable activity at all. Something is going on that's not just a kind of disruptive activity of a disordered brain. Um, Now, because by definition they're near-death rather than death experiences, um, uh, they don't necessarily tell us that much about the afterlife. They may give a foretaste of the beginning of the afterlife. Uh, I personally think they do. Um, but I think the, the, the bit that interests me most is the way that they're related to uh, rites of passage. In many traditional cultures, uh, people undergo trials by ordeal or rites of passage, where they're brought to the very edge of death um, and then come back again. Um, It's like dying to their old role and being born to a new one. Um, Vision quests for Native American youths going out into the wilderness fasting, um, often in conditions of great danger, were one kind of rite of passage. But one of the things that fascinates me um, and which I discuss in my book is that A central rite of passage in the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition is baptism. And at the time of the New Testament, John the Baptist was baptizing people on an industrial scale. They were coming to the River Jordan. He was holding them under, and uh, their lives were being transformed. 
No. And he just Normally, held them under just enough so he didn't drown well, them, right? Yeah. I think so. Yes, I think John the Baptist was a drowner. I think that he was holding them under just long enough um, so to induce a near-death experience by drowning. I mean, most people think that what he was doing was producing a symbolic mm-hmm. death and rebirth by drowning. But, you know, why go for something symbolic when you can have the real thing? Um, you know, it just takes a couple of minutes longer. Um, uh, and, of course, he would have had to know what he was doing. He might have lost a few. Um, but the um, that was pre-litigation. So um, uh, I think that the... What was happening, I think, was that people were being held under, uh, and Jesus himself was held under, and it had a huge, it was a huge turning point in his life, the experience of uh, this new spiritual illumination that happened through baptism. Um, And what happened was that then, in the early church, people started baptizing babies and uh, by sprinkling water on them. Um, And this transformative power was lost except at the Reformation. Uh, one of the more, most radical groups at the Reformation were the Anabaptists. Anna means again. And, and they said, well, look at the Bible. It doesn't say baptism, sprinkling water on babies. It says it's being fully immersed and your life's being changed. And the, the, in the 16th century in Europe, in, particularly in Germany, Holland, and England, the Anabaptists started baptizing again by total immersion. And they gave rise, of course, to the Baptist churches in America and the Mennonites and um, other uh, groups that still have baptism by total immersion. And I think it's particularly important and significant that these are precisely the groups of people who talk about dying and being born again and seeing the light. And I think that's a literal experience for a lot of people who have near-death experiences. And baptism was a low-tech very rapid way Mm -hmm. of inducing just that kind of transformative experience. Robert, do you think that the spiritual response by people is physical or is it somehow tied to consciousness? Well, I think it's both because clearly our consciousness is tied to the state of our physical body um, as in a near-death experience. And I think that the you know, um, everyone knows that the physical changes in the brain, like brain injury, can change consciousness. And and drugs, I mean, alcohol, psychoactive drugs, all these things change consciousness via physical changes. Um, and then fasting, uh, another spiritual practice, um, changes the functioning of the body and is has always been used as a spiritual practice in many different traditions. So I don't think it's either or, George. I think it's both and. You know, both are involved. And many of these spiritual practices do lead to changes in the body. Meditation itself, for example, leads to change in the brain functioning. Different regions of the brain become active. Um, There's changes in the heart rate and, and the general physiological state of the body. Without the brain, would you have consciousness? Well, that's, of course, one of the the biggest questions, isn't it? It's really another way of saying, do we survive the death of the body? Um, And I personally think we do. Um, But um, I I think it's rather hard to prove that. 
But one of the reasons why a lot of materialistic scientists think we don't is because they believe that memories are stored in the brain and that when you die, obviously your brain decays and the memories would be wiped out. Um, and any form of survival that we think about it wouldn't make much sense without memory. Um, so I myself um, don't think memories are stored in the brain. I, I think the brain tunes into them. This is part of my ideas about morphic resonance, which we've discussed on Coast to Coast before. Um, the, I think that there's a, an influence of the past that works through morphic resonance, uh, similar things resonate with similar, similar, uh, subsequent similar things. So all of us tune into a kind of collective memory of other people. Um, I think all species have a kind of collective memory, uh, and that's because we're similar to many members of our species in the past. Now, if you, if you ask, who am I most similar to in the past? Which individual am I most similar to in the past? Then the answer is me. I'm more similar to me, Rupert, and you're more similar to you, George, in the past than to anyone else. And this most specific resonance acting on us from the past is from our own past. So I think our brains are more like uh, radio receivers that tune in uh, to invisible influences, in this case coming across time, um, rather than uh, recording devices that have it all stored within them. I think you know, I don't think our brains are like video recorders. I think they're more like TV sets. Um, they're tuning in to uh, influences coming across time. So if our memories are not stored inside our brains, um, then uh, the memories could survive the death of the body in a way that they couldn't if they are stored inside the brain. Um, of course, brain damage can lead to loss of memory, as in Alzheimer's disease or right. brain injuries or strokes. Um, dementia, that things like that. And dementia, yes. That doesn't prove that they're in the brain uh, because you, if you damage a TV set or a radio set, you can interfere with its ability to produce sounds or, in the case of a TV set, pictures. Uh, but that doesn't prove all those sounds and pictures are simply being produced inside the set. There's an influence working upon it, an invisible influence coming from outside. So um, uh, these are, um, of course, this is a controversial view, uh, but um, the reason that many materialists and atheists disbelieve in uh, survival of bodily death is because they've just taken for granted the assumption that memories are stored in the brain. And scientifically speaking, this is a very questionable belief. Could be stored in the heart, some people think. I think they can be stored... Uh, well, I think my view would be that they're not even stored in the heart, that the heart resonates with them. So when you have heart transplants and people uh, pick up memories from the, the heart donor, now dead, um, I think what's happening is that heart's tuning them in to the memories of that people person rather than having them actually physically stored in the heart. Um, so it's a similar... Um, kind of view uh, that I hear, that, that you can interpret heart memories in a similar way to uh, regular memories through a kind of resonance. It is amazing how it works, isn't it? It's uh, totally amazing. What's amazing is we understand so little about some of the most obvious things. I mean, all of us take memory for granted, or at least till we start losing it. 
Um, but uh, most people just take memory for granted. Um, we take it for granted in animals. Dogs and cats obviously remember things, and even goldfish remember things. So um, memory is often taken for granted, but um, it's amazing that we just don't know how it works. And it's an open question scientifically. And as I, as I say, my own view is that it's not stored in the brain, but works by a kind of resonance. And that does leave open the whole question of survival of bodily death. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.